Welcome to Subscriptions for Authors. Meet your co-hosts, Michael Evans, sci-fi thriller author of a dozen novels, and Amelia Rose, a semi-romance author that makes six figures per year in subscriptions. Together, we will help you make more money with subscriptions and succeed in the future of publishing. Today, we're chatting with someone who may just have one of the most unique subscriptions in the world. Her name is Natalie Keller Reinhardt, and she writes equestrian fiction. That's right, she writes books for horse lovers, and she dominates the categories in Amazon and has recently been shifting more and more of her business towards subscriptions and direct sales, which we're gonna talk all about. We're gonna talk about how she's made this shift, where her income streams are, and what she's learned from managing a subscription. But there's even more insights here. For someone who is writing to a specific niche or community, this is an essential podcast, because you are going to learn how Natalie approaches discovering her readers in so many unique ways and has been able to build this fan base over the course of over a decade. It's going to be a great episode. I think you're going to enjoy this one a lot. Huge thank you to Natalie for coming on. Let's get right into this conversation. Natalie, welcome to the Subscriptions for Authors podcast. I'm very excited to chat with you because you have a really unique subscription because you do two main things in it. One, you write novels for equestrian lovers. You write equestrian fiction. I think that's super unique. We're going to talk all about that. But you also, in your subscription for readers, also have a writer, like a nonfiction subscription bundled into there, which I think is really cool that you do both in the same place. And I think there's a lot for a lot of our authors to learn from you. So I just want to say thank you for being here. And before I talk about your subscription, I want to first talk about how you're out, out in the farm taking care of your horses. You are a horse lover, but what decided you to turn your passion for something like you would think maybe you would film videos, you would do, there's a lot of different things you could do related to horses. You chose to write fiction books. Right. That's unique. What inspired that? For one thing, I have absolutely no interest in video or video production. I've only watched like the four same television shows over and over again. And the same goes for movies. So you can imagine the current trend to put everything onto a reel or TikTok does absolutely nothing for me. I've always been a reader first, like a very nerdy reader from the earliest years. And so when I grew up, I thought I was going to be a literary fiction writer. And or as I was growing up, I thought that and that was always my aspiration. But my sort of college years and years as a young parent and stuff, everything was just not going the way I expected. And I ended up writing a novella while I was still on a farm in Florida before I took a gap, sort of a farm gap and moved to New York City for a while. And I met some people in New York who could have helped me along with the, my traditional writing journey that I'd always anticipated. And ultimately, I decided that the novella, which was about horses and why people are obsessed with horses and maybe why I was obsessed with horses, just trying to dig down into those emotions, really, it needed to be read by the right people. It didn't need to be changed for everyone. It wasn't for everyone. I didn't write it for a general audience. And at that point, I actually had a fairly popular blog, which had started out just about retired racehorses, which was an up and coming topic at the time. And so I had a lot of readers built in and I said, does anybody want to read this? And people did. So it was 2011-ish, 2012-ish. And self-publishing was just hitting this interesting moment with Kindle and more Kindle users than there were books to read and that kind of thing. 
So I said, okay, let's do this. And I self-published it. And that was the start because it found its audience within about six months. This short, little, sad, little novella about basically about having a nervous breakdown, the literary fiction novel of my dreams, really, found an audience of people who got it and knew what I was talking about. And so I kept going. And here I am. Amazing. Amazing. And you recently started a new pet name, like, I want to say, like, first published maybe six or seven months ago, yeah. based around theme parks. I love, like, you wrote a fiction novel <laughs> incorporating your passion for theme parks. Like, I love it because, one, it reminds me of Stephanie Garber's Car Carnival, like that book, just like I get mm -hmm. the vibes, even though your book's quite different from that. But I immediately think of that. But it's amazing that you found these like niches that you're able to write for. for yeah. these I always so thought I that niches were where an independent writer could really find their footing and build a career instead of seeing what's popular and writing into a wave that is already crashing without me. Instead of saying a lot of people are reading this kind of romance or that kind of novel, it seemed to me that I could lean really hard into one tightly knit community, either become a part of the community or just indulge myself with a group of people I already really enjoy being a nerd with, like theme park community, and just lean into that and write about those things that make that passion not just so fun, but so weird. Because they're weird, right? It's weird to be really passionate about something to that point that I think people like me who have upended their whole life and live on a rural farm with a couple of horses and just devote their whole life to it. That's really weird, man. And I like to explore that with people who get it. <laughs> I love that. And it's such like a refreshing approach because I think that oftentimes when we talk about niche in fiction, we narrow it down to, I would say, subgenres that a lot of new ones exist now, but they're not always based around interest or passion. They intersect, but it's not always there. Like you would write maybe a romance story overall or a contemporary story just for in general, but not for right. equestrian lovers. But I'm curious how marketing goes because I saw your event schedule on your website. And I remember, I think when we were scheduling this podcast, you were talking about all the events. You do a lot of in-person events, like you're traveling. Is that how you find readers going to conventions where there are question levels or how does that go? That has become a way that I find readers. And it is also an incredible way for me to find inspiration. When I do something like a couple of weeks ago, I went to a huge three-day event in Kentucky, which my most popular series is based in that riding sport of eventing. And so for me to be able to go to that event, I'm not only able to connect with people who might read or are reading my books, but I'm able to go out and talk with the riders on the course or go on a course walk cross country with, you know, an Olympic level equestrian. And so I can absorb more of their language and the way they think about the approach to a fence or how they're going to ride their horse towards an obstacle. And I just, sometimes I took a lot of notes on one. I walked with the the coach for the British eventing team. And I just wrote down so many things because the British equestrians always have a very unique way of a, a unique sort of terminology that they use. So I have all that in my pocket and in my head for later, but getting to meet people in the equestrian world one-on-one -on -one is important because a lot of them live in the country and they don't have bookstores or they don't read a lot outside of what they can find maybe on Amazon. And it's not easy to advertise a book outside of a category. I have struggled 
<laughs> with marketing on Amazon to the point where I said, you know what, I'm never going to do this again. And I don't bother. I don't send anybody to Amazon anywhere. But it's amazing to get out and meet people and be a part of the community. It's really made me feel like I'm on the precipice of a big jump in my career, just becoming part of the community. The number of people who know me, who shout my name, it happened to me over the weekend, just volunteering at an event. Aww. The first person yeah. there was like, Natalie, I said, no one knows I'm here. And I turn around and it's a reader. That's awesome. Yeah. Going headfirst into it has been great. But before that, honestly, I've relied on Facebook ads for many years because mm -hmm. of my ability to market to a specific niche on Facebook. You'd be able to target an interest for maybe mm -hmm. equestrian and then be able to segment that by Kindle eBooks and then be able exactly. to kind of have an audience of, I bet probably several hundred thousand people that you could then target in the United States. I'm just guessing. So. Tons of people, unbelievable number of people are interested in horses to the point where sometimes I have to narrow it down literally to professional organizations because wow. a lot of, I'll get start getting comments that just say, Ooh, beautiful horses on my posts. And I go, okay, these are not. <laughs> This is not what I'm looking for. When I find people who start critiquing the position of the rider in the picture, that's when I know I found my audience. <laughs> I love that. That's such a good metric. Like they are horse people. These are horse the people. The crazed yeah. among us. Yeah. Yes. Oh, so you just mentioned, because I know you're wide and definitely I wouldn't, from looking at how well your books have done on Amazon, I wouldn't guess that is not a main sales channel for you, but it sounds like you have moved your sales channels elsewhere. So I'm curious what that's looked like for you. You said you're not directing readers to Amazon. Where are you directing them more to now? I direct them to my own site now. I have a Shopify site that I started last year. And so that's been my big push. I would have 20 books out of 25 in all the equestrian categories on Amazon when I was in Kindle Unlimited. I just, I owned those categories to the point wow. where sometimes I felt bad about it because they weren't even a lot of them were nonfiction or else it was the young adult fiction. There's no adult equestrian fiction category. So I actually felt quite guilty and asked Amazon to remove my books from the nonfiction categories. And so they paid lip service to that request, but their algorithms just dropped them right back in. Since I left Kindle Unlimited and since they changed categories and you only show up in three now, just my books only occasionally show up on bestseller lists on Amazon. It has not affected my Amazon sales in the slightest. And I I have, when I decided to go wide, which was in 2020, I had polled people fairly regularly. And see if you ever see my books on the bestseller lists and the responses are uniformly, there are bestseller lists. They had absolutely no idea. And that might be a reflection mm -hmm. on my audience that they're not going out and looking on Amazon for the next eight books they're going to read at once that they're specifically reading my books because they're horse books. And I think that's often the case, but it was just another indication to me that it was no longer important to me to be on a bestseller list. It didn't have any real bearing on my sales. And I wanted to be in libraries and because a lot of, you know, horse people tend to be horse poor. And so I wanted to make sure that there was access for everybody, whether or not they have 10 or $15 to spend on a book in a month because their vet bills are crazy or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I love that awareness of the community. Like you're one of them. And I imagine the in-person events for you because it sounds like you picked up that recently. So that's something you've done probably maybe post pandemic. Is that something that you've leaned more into recently last year or so? Yeah, I was able to make a big change because I was able to go full time in 2020. And that was because of the pandemic. Okay. I was working at Disney and I was part time, but I was working full time hours and I was wiped out as it was. And the pandemic rolled around and we closed. And I said, now I'm tired and I'm panicked. So I just started revamping my business like 15 hours a day. I'm the kind of person that works through my panic really hard and then has like a depressive fit much later. 
So I held it together for like almost a year and completely rebuilt my business to focus on wide sales and reaching out to subscribers and things like that. Wow. I mean, that productive anxiety, I'm sorry you had to feel that way, but you've accomplished a lot. And one of the things you accomplished was setting up your subscription, which has done quite well. And I'm curious, when did you specifically start that? And so far up to this point, you have, you actually have a quite a number of tiers. What's led to that evolution? How has it changed over time? I think my Patreon might date to 2017 or 2018. I honestly don't know. And the reason I set it up was I was struggling with marketing and I was working full time, had a child. And I just, I kept having to take on freelance work to get me through the gaps between releases. And I was only doing two or three releases a year because I was working full time. The freelance work was taking up too much time and I wasn't enjoying it. So I started researching Patreon because it was making the rounds here and there on different Facebook groups. And I did a lot of research and I finally launched it. And I was very clear. I said, look, this is to help me get through the lean months so that I don't have to take on freelance work. When I don't take on freelance, I write fiction. It's as simple as that. And so it started slowly, but I think I was making 100 or 200 a month pretty quickly, which was great. Yeah. And the model for it has always relied really heavily on early access. I am so addicted to early access now that it's a really huge part of my writing technique. I write a chapter, I post a chapter almost always within minutes of finishing the chapter, I will post it. And I will use the comments and the questions and the feedback to gauge how it's working and decide where it's going. So the ability to expand it over the years, it's been really organic. I've really never pushed it outside of back matter. And every now and then when I'm working on a really popular series, I will say, hey, did you know you can read the chapters of it right now? I did that yesterday and got two new subscribers. So it just filters through. So that's the Patreon approach. And then I've, so now it's a pretty decent part of my monthly income that I can rely on. And that's what I really like about it. And that's what I tell people when they question why I would do it. It's because it's reliable and subscribers get everything first because they care about my stuff. They've proved it. <laughs> yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And I love, so you have like your lower tiers where I imagine most of your people in, and when I say lower tiers, just like lower in price, based around a lot of the early access. One of them, I believe at $3, they start to get some discounts or your direct store, which is great. If they're buying like signed paperback books, all these sorts of things. But then I was like, oh, wow, this is pretty genius. At the $50 a month tier, it's the owner's box tier. You receive like, an exclusive, I think, special edition, the hardcover of each release. But you get to add a horse of your own to an upcoming book of yours. Yes, yeah, so that cool. actually, that's always, people suggested that to me. I don't remember what happened, but I think I might've had a vet bill. I used to have a foxhound with a serious way of collecting vet bills. And I think I came with one huge one and I posted on my author page that I was reeling from this vet bill. And somebody said, hey, why don't you put a higher tier on your subscription that lets somebody name an animal? And I said, yeah, okay, let's do that. And it took off right away. <laughs> so I actually, and I've met people at shows that have been like, show me pictures of the horse that I put into the book. And some of these horses show up book after book. I literally just added one today. It's awesome. It's really fun because they tell me, they'll tell me what their horse looks like in special markings, but then they tell me their horse's quirk. One horse really loves bananas. He'll do anything for a banana. So that goes <laughs> in. And this horse has a way of picking up her hoof to ask for treats. So that went straight in, like straight away. So. That's really cute. <laughs> People love it. They love, who wouldn't want their horse in a book? They're so cute. I know. I agree. It's such a good idea. I've seen authors before do tears where you get to name a character, but like getting to build your own character in a book, that is an option for people. 
people. But it's also challenging because the way like these characters, like it's a main character in the story and they get to build their own like, no, like the author needs to have that say. But with the horse, it's like a dog. Like you can have a really awesome animal who's a part of the story and has that quirk, but it's a nice way to collaborate with the audience and not have it be too much control. Like where they're literally like, oh, hey, I get to dictate the story. I like it a lot. Yeah, and they tell people about it, right? So it's the whole sell more newspapers by putting someone's name in the newspaper concept where somebody says, oh, to their friends, they say, oh, my horse is in this book. You have to read it because my horse is in it. And I've had people do that so right smart. in front of me to sell my paperback while I'm sitting there. Like, <laughs> they'll snatch it up and say, you have to read this because my horse is in it. And they go, oh, okay. And they buy the book. <laughs> oh, that's genius. Oh, I didn't even think of, oh, yeah, that's amazing. It saves amazing. me the effort of coming up with the horse because I honestly, for this one that I wrote today, I was stumped. I've been pantsing this draft really hard, which I shouldn't be doing, but I'm on vacation this month. So I was like, yeah, I don't really want to write an outline. I'll just fiddle with it. And, and I was out raking and I was thought, oh, you know what? I could use so-and-so's horse. <laughs> She's given me all the details on it. I don't have to make up a thing. So in she went, it was easy. That's beautiful. I, I love it. I love it. The, it's such a good high price tier concept to have. And then, of course, you have all of the other tiers that people can come into if they don't want to support it $50 a month, they still can get obviously access to all these wonderful things. It's genius. It's great. It's amazing to me. I like I'm deeply grateful that anybody would pay me $50 a month. And I have a lot who have paid me $25 a month for a really wow. long time, like for years and years. And when you see how those numbers add up, it's really humbling. Like you get to know what that word actually means when you say it about yourself because who am I to be getting this sort of monthly payment from somebody for me I am a very frugal clearance only person and so $25 a month are you sure about this but I learned a long time ago in marketing you, you have to work with other people's wallets not your wallet so I just went for it and it worked out <laughs> yeah no that's what's great about a subscription is you literally have a tier as little as a dollar and as high as 50 so you have different tiers that cater to different prices point just like your books are wide in libraries as well so that people who want to go support and buy that new paperback the second it comes out can do that but those who want to still read your books can as well i love it and i'm curious for you now just as a broad picture because you've got all these wide retailers you have direct sales you have subscriptions you've got lots of revenue streams that's great where's i guess as a portion of your income where does a subscription fit in and as a wide retailers is amazon still the biggest or has your direct sale store passed that where is the a broad income pie breakdown if you're able to it really depends on the month. And I couldn't quite give you an annual figure because my sales channels have really begun to change in the past year as I've started pushing in different directions. So in a month like this, I had my last ever pre-order on Amazon go out this month. So Amazon is overwhelmingly my top retailer this month. Whereas yeah. in February, I had a very anticipated sequel as an exclusive pre-order on my site. And my site did, I'm going to, I'm going to say it's at a quarter of my income for that month, maybe once everything came in. It was That's big. really good. Yeah. It was big. I've, I was, I'm very happy I'm moving in that direction <laughs> with, with exclusive pre-orders on my own site. That's how all my books are going here on out. The subscriptions are, they're probably going to be one of my top wides. It pretty much would go Amazon and then my store. And then if I have an event, direct sales will come in about even with Amazon because nice. I usually push, <laughs> I work really hard at events. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I do big bundle discounts and things like that. So I move a lot of pieces at events. And then after my site, probably subscriptions comes in there. And then all of the other ones trickle after Apple, Barnes and Noble, Kobo. I've never put a ton of effort into any of those in terms of the whole concept of really learn what sells on Kobo and then do that for a year and then really learn what sells on Google and do that for a year. That sort of mindset. I've never had that. I just, I just stuck with my own stuff and it's available elsewhere if people want it that way. So it does its own thing. Some months it's big and some months it doesn't exist. <laughs> no, that's so cool. And I'm just hearing also as well, like the direct sales figure at these events, it makes me want to ask you about, so there's, and I'm not too familiar with this. And I, I don't think anyone listening would be either. Taberton Equine Books is like, it seems like who you work with these events. Because to mm -hmm. be clear for authors who are listening, you're not going to like events where there's a hundred other authors and it's just all a book signing. Correct. You're going to equestrian expos, equestrian basically fairs. And then you're partnered with, or the book signing is hosted by Taberton Equine Books, which is not you. Yeah. I can tell from the site. That's not you. Who is that? What is the relationship there? And are you like the only author at these events? No, I, well, it depends on the event. Um, for the most part, I started partnering with Taberton Equine Books, which is an, an online slash mobile bookstore. When I had two books out, I think, way back cool. when. I lived in New York City and there is an equine event in Massachusetts every fall called Equine Affair, which is four days. And somebody said, hey, I think that you should go and sell books with this bookstore. And so I went and I think I had a four hour sort of window of books maybe it was even less and I sold all my books and I was like that was really fun and I really oh. liked the atmosphere and so it became an annual thing and it really ramped up in the past two years where now I go to all of the big trade fairs with her and we went to the Land Rover Kentucky three-day event for the first time she's gone to that event and one other author came for the first day and then it was me for the full four days of the trade fair just holding down and so at this point we're so close I'll run the store I tell her to go on breaks and I run the register I we come up with all these crazy publishing schemes during slow periods which we never put into, we never put into action, but someday we're going to do it. We work together really, really well at these shows. And I'm just so fond of the owner of this store. And she is one of the only equestrian only book vendors left in the United States. So she is on an event only schedule where, you know, any big horsey event, like the Dutchess County Fair in upstate New York is a big one. And right. the Equine Affair, Horse World Expo is a huge one for us in Pennsylvania. And she finds books that I've never seen before. She contacts authors with dusty old boxes of hardcovers. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So it's a really great relationship. It means I yeah. don't, I was able to start doing events without taking on that big financial risk of having to drive a, because none of them are close to me. And when I started, I lived in the city and I didn't have any real way of getting there with a vehicle. So I don't have to bring inventory. Like she took all of that pressure off. So I was able to just show up. And so it's, that's allowed me to really start traveling the country with this is that she holds the inventory and I just cut her the best deal I possibly can. That's a dream partnership. That's incredible. Yeah, we have a wonderful time together. I always say she must be so tired of me because while I'm there, I outline all the things we're going to do differently in the business and like just take over completely. <laughs> I have a strong retail management background. Did you do retail management when you were at Disney at all? Or? When I was at Disney, yeah. And I started in retail okay. at Barnes and Noble. So I have a lot of background in book sales as well. <laughs> That's so cool. Wow. That seems like one of those really unique situations that 
authors listening like man if you know someone like taberton in your case like a taberton equivalent that would be really cool but for people who maybe don't know a taberton equine books but still want to go to in-person events what advice would you give after going to so many events in terms of obviously these go well for you how do you make an event go well? especially because as authors i imagine even in the horse community too we love our horses we're excited to be around horse people but like at the same time a lot of us are introverted i definitely know that's true in the author community a lot of us are introverted so how do you do these events and not walk away Way, being completely exhausted because you travel so just looking at your schedule it's not a full-time concert touring travel schedule but it's not terribly far away from it the spring was very busy for me I admit, okay but i don't have anything now until july i have something at barnes and noble but that's like down the road so that's easy uh i do look at months where i have nothing on the calendar and get very excited like i don't have to go anywhere this month i do get deeply exhausted i lose my voice i end up going out for dinners with people which i regret not the people but just the extra socialization just wrecks me. Mm -hmm. I have a way of agreeing to go on large group dinners, just ordering a drink and then ordering an Uber before anybody orders their meal. And I just tell the punchline of a joke and run. And that's been helpful to me. So having an exit strategy for all the friends you're going to make on the road is a good idea. But for me, I came out of my shell working at Disney. And so I'm not saying you should work at a theme park if you're an introvert, but maybe work at a theme park if you're an introvert, because they won't let you be an introvert for very long. <laughs> and I am, but I have learned that I am comfortable speaking in front of people when I am in control of the situation or when I am the resident expert of the situation. And so when I was standing in front of a store inviting guests to come inside and try a fudge sample, I was the person in charge of getting people into that store and I knew everything I needed to know about my area. And so I was very comfortable being that person in charge and selling your books is so similar to that where you bring people in with a smile and I love your purse or where did you get that or wow that's a really nice dressage whip you just bought because they all buy whips at these shows it's so funny <laughs> I said oh you bought a purple whip how exciting for you it's so bizarre how many people buy whips at these shows and then you just engage them in conversation and I know that sounds like a gross oversimplification but that is what I learned at Disney is just to start talking to people about themselves and then they start asking you questions about yourself and in invariably, even if you talk to somebody for 15 minutes, if they don't know who you are already, they say, after a pause, wait, did you write all these books? Because I have almost 30 books, which fills a six foot table and then some. And then they start freaking out that I've written all these books and, <laughs> and just snowballs. It doesn't always snowball into a sale, but I got their attention. And because yeah. I go to these sales on repeat, the second year is always easier. The third year is always easier because they remember me from the year before. The first year is the toughest at all of them. It's on, if anything, it's like, who's this new person? Should I trust them? Are they really serious? And then they see mm -hmm. you come back the second year. You have a few more books added to your stack. They've heard some friends talk about you and they're like, oh, maybe it's time I support this author. Maybe it's time yeah. I try it out. Because there's trusted brands at these events. Yeah. You're sitting next to magazines that are celebrating their 50th anniversary this year and large breed organizations that these people have personal affiliations with. And yeah, so they're used to hucksters showing up or people just throwing together beadwork or whatever it is. They're used to people who come and go 
show and aren't really part of the community. So you have to prove that you belong there for some of these folks. I think that's something that's true across almost any community, just may engage it in a different way. And I'm curious for you, what your advice would be to other authors who you have this, I think, wonderful, beautiful, unique niche of this equestrian fiction. And so unique that like you were mentioning, like you were basically completely dominating the charts when you were like on Amazon Kindle. I understand how it could feel bad, but that's also a boss move. Look at me. Like all of the books are mine. Uh, oh, but it definitely was. <laughs> you are the number one author. Now, a lot of authors, I'm sure this is true about equestrian fiction. You're making a living now from it. There's definitely an audience. But when you talk about more like mainstream subgenres, there's really huge audiences for these. What would be your advice to people who want to write for more of a niche audience that isn't even something like a traditional publishing? I'm not sure a traditional publisher would even conceptualize that equestrian fiction is a thing. Like I'm sure mm -hmm. they would understand that's a thing, but not really. You wouldn't see that in a, you walk into a bookstore, you don't see a section for equestrian fiction. I think that's what makes what you're doing so unique. How do other authors maybe do this for what their passions are? Because assuming that most people listening might not be interested in equestrian fiction, but might be interested mm -hmm. in fishing. They might be interested in yeah. boats. They might be interested in maybe amusement parks like you. There's so many different hobbies. How do you do that? The two keys for me are accuracy. Okay. I don't write about anything that I don't know how to do. And mm. that includes upper level eventing. I might not be able to do it now, but when I was 20, <laughs> that was a different story. And no, I didn't write at the Olympic level, but I wrote at a pretty decent level and I worked for Olympians. So I have a very deep understanding of everything that I write. I only write about places that I understand. That can really matter too. When I have people who have moved to this region of Florida based on my books. Wow. I could drill down to areas. I have people say, oh, I didn't look at that area because you said it was very dry and sandy. I'm like, good choice. I'm glad. <laughs> so people who are deep enthusiasts who are passionate about something will not tolerate inaccuracy. You cannot fake it. Go look at the reviews for James Patterson's The Horsewoman, okay? That is a book that came out, was clearly aimed directly at the equestrian fiction audience and was very hit or miss with my people, let me tell you. <laughs> because of little things. It was little things that upset people. People say again and again to me that one woman in the book, I didn't read it, one woman in the book complains that the saddle was heavy. What English jumping saddle would be heavy in this day and age? And she's not wrong. I think my saddle might weigh four pounds. Like, Why would we have heavy saddles or jumping huge fences? And that pisses people off. They can't stand it. And they write that in the reviews. Accuracy is your literal best friend. You need to be really realistic on your, for me, on my social media. The most success I have with social media is when I am very real about my life, about my horses, when I didn't have horses, about my dog, just super realistic and open all of the time. I see advice sometimes on social media, like pick a day and post about your favorite color, pick a day and post about your favorite food. And that is, people see through that at this point. And if they don't see through that, then I don't know, they're not going to be great conversationalists either. So you're going to think that your audience isn't that great. And they're going to think you're super meh too because you're not being honest with them. So you have to pick whatever channel you're willing to put yourself out on and then you have to do it. And I really believe that social media, as much of a curse as it is most of the time these days, is so important for us if we want to find our people. If we mm. want to dig into those niches and have those conversations and ultimately sell ourselves, we have to be part of the community that we want to respect us and read our stuff. That's all there is to it. You can dislike it all you want, but you also need to learn it and play it. <laughs> that's, no, that's really good advice. And it's something too that just takes time and it takes a lot of hard work, which you 
clearly you've been at this for such a long time. And I'm curious, even with your subscription, because your subscription now you're five plus years into, what have you learned about a subscription that has maybe surprised you or something that about your approach to running a subscription as an author that's changed from maybe your beginning to now? I think the lack of expectation on the part of the subscribers really surprised me that they're not the exception of a few people who know who they are. They're not tapping their watch every day looking for that chapter that I promised them. Some of them won't even give me the address to send them a paperback book. They're like, no, I do this to support you, not because I want you to send to me things. If I need to take a month off, which I've done in the past, they say, take care of yourself. We'll be here when you come back. And they have no expectations. In fact, some people will get on my case if I post before that point. So I feel like people will say a lot of things to you. Like if you post on your Facebook page, look, I'm really burned out. I need a break. You will get a hundred comments that say, hey, just take care of yourself. We'll be here waiting, right? And they may or they may not. And that might not even be their fault because they might not see when you post when you come back. But your subscribers mean it and they will check in on you in any way that they can to make sure you're taking care of yourself. And they will not cancel their subscription just because you didn't post for a month. They will say, hey, I hope everything's okay. We're counting on you to take care of yourself. They're really, they're in it sincerely. That's really beautiful. I'm really glad too that you've been able to take some time off because I know that Outside of what your fans tell you, which, as you're saying, they're very supportive. Being a full-time author, you were saying, like, when you first did this, it was the 15-hour days yeah. for a very long time. It, no one's telling you when to take off. And that is both a blessing and a curse. So I'm glad that you've been able to do that. It's only really recent, honestly. I had a fallow period last fall that set me really behind. And then I worked nonstop for six months to catch up with that. And then I said, you cannot keep writing like this. This is it's not fun. And when it's not fun, people can read it's not fun. Mm. So I've really had to slow down. Like I'm on a vacation right now, but I've also written 3000 words today because I don't what have do to. Yeah. <laughs> I sat on my back porch for three hours and I watched the birds. And sometimes I looked at Twitter and sometimes I looked at the weather and then I'd write a little bit and then I look at the birds some more and it added up eventually to 3,000 words. Okay, good. <laughs> Put it on Patreon. <laughs> yeah. Call it a day. That's a very productive day. But I'm curious about, I'm thinking about, okay, so I'm a writer. I have my hobbies, right? So maybe I might, there might be someone listening who's really passionate about, let's say theme parks. I'm just using an example in this case. They love theme parks. Right? They spend their nights watching roller coaster videos. They save up every month to try it maybe once a quarter, go on a vacation to a new theme park. And when maybe Carol or a theme park like that comes out with a new ride, they're going to want to be there. So I'm understanding this person. But now this person, like you, is in the unbelievable and awesome position because you've worked so hard and you're writing all these amazing stories to now have this hobby that you're still doing, like you're still... You still have horses. You're still like actively in the equestrian community, but also are a writer in the equestrian community too. So it's like your whole life, kind of-ish, is horses. Like that, that's a lot. How do you not get burnt out from the hobby turning into kind of like everything? To be honest, I just came back into the equestrian community. Okay. I did get burned out. That's how I wrote my first book. And the character in the in my first book chose horses. I did not. I moved to New York City and I was galloping racehorses for a while, but then I quit so that I could just focus on having a real life. And I went to a lot of shows and wrote for magazines. But the thing about something that you're passionate about is that it doesn't leave you alone just because you want it to. And within, I want to say a year's time, I was riding horses in Central Park for a living. I can't. That's awesome. It just kept coming back. <laughs> And so I was in New York for five years. And while I was there, yeah, I was a member of the New York City Parks Department mounted unit. And that was 
fully an accident. I didn't intend to do that, but that's just my personality. I'm just like a horse magnet. And I moved back to Florida and focused on work. And I was working at Disney and I was working for Virgin and some other tourism companies. I was working in social media. I was taking all the stuff I'd learned, marketing books, and made it into a corporate career and was doing pretty well at that. But I decided that I really wanted to write full time and focused on that. And then the horse thing just insinuated itself back into my life. There was no telling it no. It just kept coming back. And now that I've moved to the country and I have a farm and I'm doing all the things I said I wouldn't do and being 110% immersed in the equestrian community, I am so very content. And I think maybe it's just got something to do with age and the ability to settle down, honestly. <laughs> To, there was a 10 years ago, I couldn't just sit in my front yard and be like, this is bliss and I never want to leave my front yard. Five years ago, I couldn't. But now, and especially probably post-pandemic, I absolutely can do that. I don't want to be anywhere else. That's so, so nice. I'm sure that it is a blessing of age amongst other things, but some things cannot be denied and they will chase you down until you give in to them. Yeah. And you have the dual luck of being both a horse lover and an amazing storyteller. So you've found a way to combine both. And my last question for you is specifically on subscriptions. And I'm curious, because you mentioned, and it's true, you have two subscription platforms, a Patreon and a Reem. What would be your advice to other authors who, I know you, Reem's new, so you started off in Patreon, but in terms of just, should you have two platforms? How is it managing two platforms? Because they'll see your links to both down below. They're awesome. I'm curious what your advice would be on that to people. I like the reason why I'm able to, I actually, I have three channels because I have a Substack as well. And the reason I'm able to have multiple channels is that I duplicate some, but not all content. So I'm never writing for just one, one location. I'm always writing for at least two. And so there's just a lot of copy and pasting that goes on. Patreon obviously has existed and will continue to exist because some people are always going to want to use that platform. Ream, for me, the e-reader ability of Ream is superior in just about every way to Patreon's blog post style and or lack of organization. So I post my serial novels there as well. And I'm also going to continue to post list in a library format so that if somebody reads something on Ream that they like, they don't have to go find another book. They can read it in platform. So it has that advantage. But everything that I'm adding to Ream right now is also going to, it's either going to Patreon if it's a work in progress, or it's actually going to Kindle Vela if yeah. it is a, if it is a serial. You have to balance out what gets posted first or whatever, but hey, it's paywalled. It's fine. So I'm doing that. I'm just finding ways, different ways to attract people. And the sub stack is just for the theme park side of things, that pen name. And cool. again, I'm just pasting the same serial that's going into Ream. So it's not, I'm not doing a ton of additional work for each one. I'm just trying to meet people where they're at. If there's people on sub stack that are interested, I'm meeting them there. If there's people on Patreon, I'm meeting them there. If there's people discovering it on Ream or they want to just keep reading then I'll meet them there. That's a great mindset. That's awesome. <laughs> and we're very grateful to have you on Reem. And the last thing is after listening to all these incredible insights, I'm sure people are going to want to find you. So where can we find you online? My name is Natalie Keller Reinert with no H. It's not Reinhardt. It's Reinert. And I'm at NatalieKReinert.com and NatalieKReinert.shop and on all your socials as Natalie K. Reinert as well. I always tell people you can tap in my name or you can usually you can write equestrian fiction into <laughs> Google as well. And I should That's pop up so pretty awesome. quickly. <laughs> That's as everyone try that. That's so cool. I love that. You <laughs> own the search term. That's incredible. Natalie, this was 
Amazing. I, I know you already know this, but you just have an incredible story as a writer and I'm so proud of what you been able to accomplish and so grateful we had you on today. So thank you again. Thank you for having me. I'm super grateful to live in a time where I can do this. And I'm very thankful for people like you on the back end who are making it easier for us to get our stories out there. That's the goal. That's definitely the goal. <laughs> thank you again. This is the end of this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I know we had a ton of fun chatting with Natalie and the good news is if you want more subscription insights, first of all, you're already listening to the podcast. We have a ton of other episodes. Odds are you haven't listened to all of our episodes. And let me let me promise you, you won't regret listening to some of them. So if this is your first time listening to an episode of the Scriptures Fathers podcast, check out our backlist. I recommend listening to our first episode, Interview with Amelia Rose, how she became a six-figure subscription author. I also recommend listening to 10 Steps to 100K in subscriptions. Great podcast. But... We don't just have podcasts. If you want to check out the Facebook group, we already have 2,600 plus authors in there. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a big number. It's like a mouthful to say. It's an amazing community, and that's because of all of you. And if you want to learn more about subscriptions, it's a great place to go. We also have our weekly blog. We have fireside chats. And we even have the wait list for an accelerator that we're running that will be coming out our second cohort in November that you can find and where you can see all of that. You can find those individual links in the description. But if you just go to subscriptionsforauthors.com, you'll see the home for all of our content. And there's a lot of great stuff. We even, if you sign up for a mailing list, we'll send you a free book all about subscriptions. So we're excited to have you here. If you enjoy this podcast, we have a ton of other cool insights for you. But for now, that's it from me. We'll be back next week. We'll be back with hopefully another great episode. But in the meantime, don't forget... Storytellers rule the world.